This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Dialectica. I'm Josh Haney, one of the producers here and the host of today's show. For those new to the program, Dialectica is a weekly radio show made with love by graduate students at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. I should mention that the show will also be available in its entirety on our blog, which is at dialecticaradio.blogspot.com. Every Tuesday, we explore a public policy topic that is controversial, timely, or just plain interesting. This week is little of all three, as we're focusing on value-added teacher evaluations. For the non-policy one, this simply means... Well, I'll just let the experts do the explaining. Here's LBJ professor Cynthia Osborne. Generally, value-added is trying to link what the teacher does in terms of increasing students' learning um, directly to the students that that teacher has. And it generally looks at the progress that students have made in prior years and determines whether that teacher is helping that student make similar progress or better progress or not as a greater progress. So it's generally comparing students across years and also among their peer groups. So taking into consideration the students' characteristics, some of the school's characteristics, and other sorts of factors that would also affect whether that student, the, the level at which that student increases their knowledge every year. As Professor Osborne said, one advantage of this method is that it doesn't penalize schools or teachers for things beyond their control like students' poverty, English language ability, or previous achievement. Value-added simply tracks progress made over the year by each student based on their performance on yearly standardized tests. Ideally, this method would favor the teacher who was able to raise their net scores the most, not the ones who simply got the highest scores. Now, the whole point of this, uh, at least according to the policymakers and school administrator, it, administrators in favor of it, uh, is simply to identify who is succeeding in the classroom and who is failing, and to allocate resources and make recommendations accordingly. But this new method is really just an effort to solve that age-old question. What makes a good teacher? Now, we all have our opinions about what qualities a good teacher possesses. Most everyone can harken back to the golden years of elementary school and hopefully conjure up memories of dedicated, kind teachers who made new and exciting concepts come alive at the front of the class. Now, considering it's been a while since I was last inside a public grade school, I thought I'd try to figure out from some real experts what it is that makes a good teacher. A good teacher lets you take your shoes off in class. A good teacher will give you candy every day. A good teacher doesn't make you do the tax test. 
Now, I tried to explain to that last little girl that those tests were only to make sure she wasn't left behind. She wasn't having it. On second thought, that little girl did speak to something important though. Just as she wasn't a fan of her evaluation being tied to a high stakes test, teachers aren't either, which is where value added starts to get controversial. A few weeks ago, the LA Times published a ranking of thousands of teachers in LA Unified School District based solely on the value added system. Based on test score data covering seven years, the Times analyzed the effects of more than 6,000 elementary school teachers on their students' learning. Among other things, the paper found huge disparities among teachers, some of whom worked just down the hall from one another. The Times found that after a single year with teachers who ranked in the top 10% in effectiveness, students scored an average of 17 percentile points higher in English and 25 points higher in math than students whose teachers ranked in the bottom 10%. Students often backslid significantly in classrooms of ineffective teachers, and thousands of students in the study had two or more ineffective teachers in a row. While the Times analysis was interesting, it was the response to the expose that was fascinating. Teacher unions boycotted the paper, journalists and freedom of information advocates celebrated the disclosure of massive amounts of data. And even a few policymakers jumped on the bandwagon, explaining that one advantage of this relatively new method is that it controls for outside influence like poverty and family background, as we discussed earlier. Even Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education, weighed in, surprisingly endorsing the move. What's there to hide, he asked. Here's Duncan in a speech shortly after the Times story broke. The truth can be hard to swallow, but it can only make us better and stronger and smarter. But the union's resistance wasn't just a stubborn effort to protect its less effective members or to hide its warts. Union President A.J. Duffy said, You're leading people in a dangerous direction, making it seem like you can judge the quality of a teacher by a test. Here's an interview with Randy Weingarten from the American Federation of Teachers. If ultimately teachers know that this data is going to be published, what teacher um, is going to say, um, I want to work with the toughest kids? And again, here's Professor Osborne. I don't think that's the most um, effective way of going about getting this information out. I don't think that that... Um, helps the parents, it doesn't help the teachers, it doesn't really help the communities. Should there be information on teachers provided to the teachers to help inform their instruction? I think that that should certainly help to inform their instruction. If we have solid evidence that a teacher is not effective, should a principal make decisions about that and, and that information be used by the principal, um, that might be another useful way for it too. Um, but this one number that's often created, too often we put too much stake on one particular number when 
um, there might be a whole portfolio of things that we should look at to really determine whether a teacher has added value. For instance, if there's a, a teacher that teaches students who come in all passing a standardized test, that teacher may not actually quote-unquote add value to those students because they're all at the ceiling. But that doesn't mean that that teacher isn't a good teacher. So looking at one number for that teacher would give an incorrect portrayal of that teacher's contribution to those students. Also, there's a problem of giving credit to the right person. Again, here's Professor Osborne. Sometimes it is very difficult to determine the impact that a particular teacher has on a student. So if there's team teaching that goes on, um, how do you measure the impact that each teacher has or how much credit does each teacher get? If um, I teach a student English and you teach a student science, it, it, is there no correlation between what I've done in my English class and their success in your science class? As this new system of evaluations is slowly being introduced into school districts across the country, it has been implemented in ways that has drawn strong, though less sensational, criticism from teachers, parents, and policy professionals alike. In Washington, D.C., 25 teachers were let go this past summer based in part on their low value-added numbers. In Houston school districts, it is also used in part to make hiring and firing decisions as well as to dole out incentive pay. So the more net improvement students see, the more their teacher's net worth increases. Houston isn't alone in holding carrots in front of its teachers. In fact, Texas, known for its unique brand of freewheeling, low-regulation capitalism, is a leader of sorts when it comes to incentivizing its teachers based on student performance. To understand how, a little history lesson is in order. In 2005, after the legislature failed to pass a bill authorizing performance pay program, Governor Rick Perry turned around and issued an executive order to do just that. However, the largest component of that effort, the Texas Educator Excellence Grant, or TEAG, did not produce the academic improvements that proponents, including Governor Rick Perry, had hoped for. So, after spending $300 million, the state canceled the program and hired some researchers at a&M, Perry's alma mater, to figure out just what went wrong. Their study focused on flaws in the way the program was designed and did not conclude whether or not merit pay for teachers in general was a good idea. Perry stuck to his guns, though, and continued to endorse the concept of performance-based pay. Although lawmakers discontinued Teague, they provided nearly $200 million a year for another merit pay plan that began in 2008 the District Awards for Teacher Excellence, or DATE, program. This effort remains one of the largest merit pay plans in the nation. 
At first, about one in five districts in the state signed up for the program, which distributed its first bonuses to qualifying teachers last fall. Those bonuses were based on 2009 tax scores and other factors. Under the DATE plan, at least 60% of the funds must be used for bonuses based on student performance. Remaining funds can be used as stipends for teachers at hard-to-staff schools or in high-demand subjects such as math and science. Stipends can also be paid to teacher mentors and for professional development. The verdict on the DATE plan, which is authorized to run through 2011, is still out. However, legislators were still hungry for some more accountability. They wanted to tie student test scores to even more things. Instead of just using it to grade the teachers, they passed a law that would now hold teacher certification programs in schools accountable for their students' students' performance. To explain, here is Professor Osborne. Uh, There was a Senate Bill 174 passed um, in session that... um, allows TEA to, uh, or the Texas Education Agency, to um, hold accountable education prep programs, um, schools that train our teachers and principals um, for the quality of teacher or principal that they uh, produce, so to speak. And so there's steps in that direction to figure out how to to do that on a scale that will be... um, Um, reliable and that will provide the educator prep programs valuable information to help them improve their programs and will provide um, the state and principals and superintendents um, with information to know whether we are placing our teachers well in the areas that they should be placed whether we're able to provide the professional development that's necessary for our new teachers so that we see progression because all teachers come in with something to learn, obviously, and they generally progress quite a bit in their first three years. This will help us, if, if we can, um, develop something that will really um, you know, examine how good these teachers are doing with figuring out what the right help for those teachers would be. And it will also help us to retain the talent that um, we've spent and invested state dollars in um, producing so that we ha- keep the best teachers around. And as you likely guessed, No one's exactly sure what sort of impact that's had either. All right, now that we're all caught up, I'd like to return our focus to Houston schools for a moment. While I did mention that there are statewide performance programs, none of them utilized value added, something which is expected to change very soon, especially once more people learn about the results Houston School District got. 
Since the district began using value added as part of its educational improvement model in 2007, the number of schools rated recognized and exemplary by the Texas Education Agency has grown from 84 to 205. That means 74% of HISD's schools are earning the state's top two ratings. While no one is claiming that value-added deserves all the credit, this will without a doubt be used to bolster proponents' cases. This market-based scheme would seem to incentivize all the right kinds of outcomes, if it weren't for several problems. For little Johnny Smith's teacher to get that bonus pay, Johnny and his peers would have to improve more than the students next door. This, my mother told me, could have very serious consequences in a field that relies on collaboration and shared best practices. She's taught in North Texas for over five years and now has a new position evaluating teachers for the school district. I think one of the most important aspects of teaching is the collaborative nature the collaborative relationship you have with your teammates. And if teachers are competing for a raised pool, um, the, the top performers get that, then that's going to cause teachers to not want to collaborate, especially more experienced teachers, um, if they know that they're by helping others up, it's reducing their ability to be able to get raises. I could see some teachers might choose not to collaborate to the extent that they've had in the past. I told my mom about the LA Times article. I told her that some of the quote bad teachers were surprised by the ranking and said that they wished they had known about it. While she didn't change her mind about her concerns with using value added as the only measure of teacher effectiveness, she did have this to say. I think as a teacher that had I been given that information about my students' growth over the year, that that would be a good tool for me to look at reflectively as my, my effectiveness in a classroom. I, I could use that data and rather than it being a gotcha kind of thing um, to be able to look at it and make decisions that would inform my instruction rather than you know, penalize me for something I may not have even known that I wasn't doing because I, I didn't have access to this data. Just as soon as she said that, the teacher in her was quick to say that, again, this would be a tool, not a bludgeon, used to boot out underperforming teachers. While I certainly see her point, when researching for this story, I stumbled across some things that made me consider how effective of a tool this could even be. One study found that across five large urban districts, among teachers who were ranked in the top 20% of effectiveness in the first year, fewer than a third were in that top group the next year, and another third moved all the way down to the bottom 40%. A separate study found that teachers' effectiveness ratings in one year could only predict 4 to 16% of their variation in their rating the following year. Therefore, a teacher who appears to be very ineffective in one year might have a much different result the following year. And with the recent news that Texas schools were using inflated data to prevent being shut down, it's hard to know how reliable these test scores even are. And Texas isn't the only state that's faced this problem. 
Inflated test scores have been reported in New York as well. Despite Arnie Duncan's ringing endorsement of publishing the LA Times data, even the research arm of the Department of Education wrote that value-added estimates, quote, are subject to a considerable degree of random error. They found error rates of 25% based on three years of student scores. With fewer years, the error rate was even higher. Now, to be fair, even value added's chief advocates over at the LA Times admit that there are faults with an evaluation system that only takes into consideration the scores on one test. Even the most numbers-driven, economically-minded policymaker will admit that, yes, there is some other valuable thing going on in the classroom that doesn't translate into tax scores. The problem is those other intangibles are, well, just that. How do you quantify patience or ability to command attention? It's a bit like trying to measure who your best friend is and then rank them in numerical order. Sure, you could devise some arbitrary point system, but that would, of course, be arbitrary. And it wouldn't account for all the incremental differences between teachers. But at the same time, we are fair to expect results from our teachers. We entrust millions of children and invest billions of dollars to these professionals each year. There's simply too much writing on to throw up our hands and say it can't be done. The problem is, it's this latter sentiment that is dominant in the No Child Left Behind era of high-stakes testing. And the Obama administration isn't making things much better. Recently, the Department of Education made states with laws prohibiting linking student data with teachers ineligible to compete in Race to the Top, which is Obama's incentive-based education reform program. It's been getting so many headlines lately. Also, it designed its scoring system to reward states that use value-added calculations in teacher evaluations. So, while value-added becomes further entrenched in our teacher evaluation systems, you might be wondering, where does that leave us? Should we step boldly into the brave new world of calculated teacher accountability? Should we take to the streets and protest burning effigies of those muckraking LA Times reporters? who shine the national spotlight on what was before just the subject of dense academic papers. The fact is, value-added is here to stay, and that can be a very good thing. Value-added is a powerful and comparatively accurate way to show teachers where they can improve when it comes to preparing their kids for standardized tests. But that's about where its usefulness ends. Even if you grant supporters the notion that value-added can identify teachers at the ends of the spectrum, it's becoming increasingly clear that it may not be very reliable at distinguishing among teachers in the middle of the pack. But that's exactly what happens when you publish a ranking based on those numbers. What parent would not be tempted to switch classes to get that little advantage? I think the best thing to take away from the Los Angeles case is that the story was an understandable overreaction 
to an unacceptable status quo. For years, school administrators and union leaders have defeated almost any attempt at teacher measurement, partly by pointing to the limitations. Lately, though, the politics of education have changed. Parents know how important teachers are, but they also know that, just as with artists or friends, some teachers are a lot better than others. And without a doubt, test scores are surely part of the solution, even if the public ranking of teachers are not. Rob Manwaring of the research group Education Sector has suggested that districts release a breakdown of teachers' value-added scores at every school without tying the individual scores to teachers' names. This would avoid humiliating teachers and still give principals an incentive to employ good ones. But many in the anti-value-added camp are instead getting behind the old-fashioned method, putting a principal or experienced teacher in the classroom to observe and make suggestions. And this makes intuitive sense. I mean, take the business world for example. Private sector evaluations of workers doing complicated, specialized tasks rarely rely on simple output measures. Instead, employers spend a whole lot of time and effort collecting the opinions of knowledgeable managers and co-workers. This would be difficult for teachers who generally work alone and are formally observed in the classroom only a handful of times each year. Replacing these haphazard observations with more frequent visits from trained evaluators will require substantial additional resources, which isn't likely to be available considering Texas is looking at what could be a $21 billion shortfall. Also, one reason this hasn't worked in the past is, as I hinted to earlier, most teacher evaluations are just cursory glances, snidely referred to as drive-by evaluations. One study found that an overwhelming majority of teachers received a satisfactory rating. Really? With a dropout rate hovering over 30% statewide and the achievement gap between whites and minorities the highest it's been in 24 years, are our teachers and our school systems as a whole really doing a satisfactory job? And that leads us to the point where we just have to admit that no system is perfect. If principals and teachers are allowed to grade themselves, it will be virtually impossible to make sure they don't have their thumb on the scale. If schools instead try to measure the work of teachers, some will inevitably be misjudged. Katie Haycock, president of the Education Trust, said it best. On whose behalf do you want to make the mistake? The kids or the teachers? We've always erred on behalf of the adults before. You may want to keep that in mind if you ever get a chance to look at a list of teachers and their value-added scores. Some teachers, no doubt, are being done a disservice. Then again, so were a lot of students. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.